time for the Cable Guide, the podcast where I talk about every appearance of Nathan, Christopher, Charles, Dayspring, Ascani, Sun, Summers, the all-purpose adventure guy, otherwise known as Cable. Welcome back to the show, guys. We are going to talk about our first major crossover event this episode. It's a story of how a country built on the subjugation of a marginalized people embraced a mentally unstable, sadistic racist as their leader, then discovered that might not be in their best long-term interests. And before you get excited, no, we're not talking about modern politics. We are talking about the Extinction Agenda, which ran in the fall of 1990. Now, before we get into this, there are a few things I need to go over. First, this is not exactly a Cable story. Cable is definitely in it, and I would say he has a bigger part in this story than he did in Days of Future Present. But even though Cable is very much a buzzworthy character in 1990, he's not exactly a huge deal yet. He's still getting his feet. So there isn't really going to be a Cable-centric crossover for a couple years. But, of course, Cable is in it, so of course we're going to talk about it. But I'm going to do this one more like how I did uh, Days of Future Present, where I'm going to do a very broad summary of the entire event, and then I will go back and talk about the high points and low points of the various issues. Also, um, I realized that maybe I take for granted that some of the people listening to the show know all the ins and outs of the X-Universe. Fabian Nicieza said in an interview last year that the comics that came out when we're 12 to 16 years old are our favorite comics of all time. Now, that's not necessarily true, but I would say that the comics I was reading from the ages of 12 to 16 are probably some of my more formative comics. That's when I first started really paying attention to Uncanny X-Men And even if I wasn't reading X-Factor very much, um, and even if I wasn't reading much of New Mutants before Cable came onto the book, I always made an effort to keep up with them. So I was pretty familiar with all the ins and outs of the X-Universe from, say, 1987 to 1991, early 1992. And I forget that not everybody knows that. And sometimes I breeze over things. So before we talk about Extinction Agenda, I'm going to cover some story beats to kind of fill in the gaps, just in case anybody listening doesn't know all those ins and outs. So we will dive right into that next. Okay, so there are several things I want to give context to, and I'm going to cover them in the order that they appeared in publication. The first is Doug Ramsey. Now, Doug was a mutant who had the uh, non-tactical ability to translate and speak any language. He could understand anything written in another language. He could understand anything spoken in another language. He could then turn around and write, read, speak, whatever. He was a student at Xavier's, and he was kind of brought on to the New Mutants to translate for Warlock, who we'll be talking about in the story. Warlock was an alien, and he Warlock becomes kind of the powerhouse of the team, and Warlock, or sorry, Doug becomes his BFF, and a lot of times when fights would break out, Doug would wear Warlock kind of like a suit of armor, or in extreme circumstances they would kind of merge, 
And there was always a danger to that because Warlock's body was made up of what was called the transmode virus, which did transmit by touch. Now, Doug died a very ignominious death. Uh, he was basically just shot with a regular handgun by an evil anti-mutant Dr. Moreau called the Animator. Um, he w Doug was not a big, uh, didn't have a lot of support from the fans. He was an interesting character, but he wasn't an especially exciting character. And so uh, line, the line editor at the time had Louise Simonson kill him off. Now, Doug plays pretty much no role in the events of this story, but there is something that happens towards the end of it that will set up events for a crossover that takes place in four years, which we'll be covering. Uh, but uh, for the meantime, that is it. There, there is a small bit of consequence to Doug Ramsey in this story. The uh, much greater consequence is Cameron Hodge. Now, Hodge was... Uh, Warren Worthington, the angel, later Archangel's best friend in college. And when the original X-Men decided to found a new team, um, they, they came up with the idea, based on Hodge's thoughts, that they would set themselves up publicly as mutant hunters, uh, human-appearing mutant hunters, and... But then they would also have secondary identities that they called the exterminators, which were kind of like the uh, violent mutant terrorists that, you know, so when so when they would show up in public and do stuff, they knew that they would get called terrorists by the media. And so then later their public identities of X Factor would show up to investigate. And if this sounds like a bad idea, it's because it was. And Louise came on, when Louise came on the book, she retconned that Hodge had actually been working against the team the whole time. He was a, a rabidly anti-mutant. He set up the cover story to pretty much uh, drum up anti-mutant sentiment. Um, he uh, arranged for Warren's wings to be amputated when he was mutilated during the uh, mutant massacre event. And... Because of that, Warren became uh, the much more dangerous Archangel. And during the Inferno event, Hodge made a deal with the demon Nastir to become immortal. So Hodge kidnapped uh, Warren's girlfriend, Candy Southern, then pretty much tortured her to death. Warren found out about it and decapitated Hodge with his metallic wings, which is the last uh, up until this story that we see of Cameron Hodge. Also of tremendous significance in this story is the island nation of Genosha, which showed up during the Outback era of X-Men, during uh, the period between the Fall of the Mutants and Inferno. And it's an allegory for apartheid-era South Africa. Basically, it is a uh, idyllic uh, seemingly idyllic country. It's very prosperous. It has a tremendous amount of technology, but its dark secret is that it uh, subjugates its mutants. It kidnaps them, puts them through a pretty much a brainwashing process where they are functionally mindless. They're only able to carry out instructions they don't think for themselves. Uh, Wolverine and Rogue ended up there with Madeline Pryor during the Outback era. Um, they caused quite a bit of uh, damage while they were there in the, in the process of escaping. And also, uh, the son, 
of what's known as the gene engineer, which is the guy in charge of the mutate process, uh, ended up defecting along with his girlfriend, who was a mutate. When I covered Days of Future Present, I mentioned that Storm was in the body of a 12-year-old. Basically, her body de-aged. Well, how did that happen? Um, toward the end of the Outback era, which is something I'm going to be saying a lot in the next couple explanations, I forget the circumstances of the situation, but something happened where Havoc thought he had accidentally killed Storm with his plasma blast. And Storm did not die, but she was injured and she was found by the uh, nanny, who was this mentally ill lady who wanted to protect children by brainwashing and weaponizing them. <laughs> um, so Nanny uh, put Storm in a science machine, de-aged her to a 12-year-old or thereabouts, um, wiped her memory, and nullified her powers. Storm got her powers and her memories back recently, but she has not returned to her natural physical age. Once again, towards the end of the Outback era, the remaining X-Men, after Storm had disappeared, were attacked by Master Mold, who, in normal circumstances, this is like a super giant sentinel that makes more sentinels, but in this case, he was a super giant sentinel who would also become techno-organic. And so he was super dangerous, and he was going to kill the whole team, uh, but then they used this thing called the Siege Perilous, which was a magical portal, and when you go through it, it... It changes you in such a way as to what you're supposed to be or what you need or something magic, 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 magic. Now, as of this time, the only person that went through it that has reappeared is Psylocke. Now, before that happened, uh, Wolverine was off doing whatever Wolverine does when the rest of the team went through the Siege Perilous. He came back. The, uh, the cyborg um, land the pirates, <laughs> the Reavers found him, messed him up real good, and crucified him, and he was found by Jubilee, and Jubilee freed him and helped him escape, and they'd been on the run, and they encountered Psylocke when Psylocke, who was, had traditionally been a Caucasian lady from England, had her body seemingly magically transformed into that of a ambiguously Asian woman and given ninja skills because comics. And Wolverine and Jubilee and Psylocke have been running around having adventures ever since. Now that is everything I think that, a, that someone going into this fresh would know. I apologize if this is an unnecessary info dump. I don't mean to grant-splain anything to anyone, but I'm trying to make the show more inclusive to listeners who maybe only have a surface-level knowledge of X-Men type stuff. So with all the preamble out of the way, let's jump in fully to the Extinction Agenda. The Extinction Agenda, January 1990 to January 1991. Genosian magistrates, led by former X-Men Havoc, attack the grounds of Xavier's mansion and abduct Wolfsbane, Richter, Boom Boom, Warlock, and a de-aged Storm. The captured young mutants are teleported to the operations center of Cameron Hodge, the new de facto leader of Genosha, who quickly has their powers nullified. 
The teleportation process has also drained almost all of Warlock's life energy. Warlock helps the others escape their cell, but dies when Hodge attempts to absorb his transmode virus. A Genosian press conference announces Warlock's death, as well as their government's intentions to try and execute the others as enemies of the state. Hodge, meanwhile, hopes that the collected mutant teams get involved, partially to create an international incident that discredits all mutants, and partially to gain revenge on Archangel and his associates. Soon, X-Factor and the remaining X-Men and New Mutants arrive in Genosha and are almost immediately attacked by magistrates led by Havoc, who has been brainwashed by Hodge following his journey through the Siege Perilous. Wolverine, Psylocke, and Jubilee arrive on Genosha a little later. Cyclops help Havoc break his brainwashing, but Havoc is forced to continue playing the part. Soon, nearly all of the mutants are captured with their powers nullified. Storm and Wolfsbane are both put through the mutate process. Meanwhile, Hodge uncovers a conspiracy against him by Genosha's Genegineer and the commander of the Magistrates. The Captain Mutants effect an escape with Havoc's help, and Storm, using an ability programmed into her by the Genegineer, restores her ally's powers, freeing herself from the mutate process and restoring her body to its true age in the process. Storm is unable to break Wolfsbane's mutate conditioning, but Rain is able to resist the conditioning as long as she remains in her werewolf form. After a long battle, Cyclops and Havoc finally use their powers to destroy Hodge's cyborg body, and Richter drops a skyscraper on Hodge's disembodied immortal head. Chief Magistrate Anderson holds a press conference, blaming the mutant's abduction on the Genosian president, and announces that the president has been overthrown and the mutates have been freed. Wolfsbane and Havoc decide to stay in Genosha to help the newly emancipated mutate population. The other mutants return home, and Warlock's ashes are scattered on Doug Ramsey's grave. Okay, so like I said, that is the plot with really broad brushstrokes, but it really touches on all the salient plot points. Now, there's a lot more to the story, because this is an arc that ran through three issues of Uncanny X-Men, three issues of New Mutants, and three issues of X-Factor. And so with a plot that honestly relatively basic, there's a lot of filler. And I'll be honest, I'm not a huge fan of this story because a lot of it's just kind of torture porn. And that's not my thing. Um, honestly, I feel like if this story had been done any time in the past, I don't know, 15 years, it could have been done with a one-shot and then one issue of each series, and then maybe another kind of epilogue one-shot, like an alpha, you know, three regular issues and an omega. And that's it. Um, I think it really could have been compressed a whole lot better. But, um, and again, you know, not my favorite story of all time. Um, Cable is in it. He doesn't really accomplish anything. Um, he actually messes up pretty bad in points, um, but we'll talk about it. So I'm going to talk about the major points of at least most of the issues. So one second while I grab my notes here, super professional podcasting in action, kids. All right. So we're going to start with Uncanny number 270. And one thing I did like about this, the Uncannies are all by Jim Lee and I have been kind of critical of 
Jim Lee from the Image era on. I feel like from the time he started doing Wildcats or maybe even with Adjectival Sexman, his art really became, in my opinion, and I could be wrong, but to me, when I look at it, it feels just like a series of pinups that don't really convey a story. This is not the case with this story. His art is on freaking point. I feel like this is really, well, honestly, the story of Uncanny that comes after this, where they all go off in the space and fight this, uh, scroll, the war scrolls, that's peak Jim Lee. But this is almost peak Jim Lee. It's really, really good. The art flows really well from one panel to the other, and you could almost you know, get the entire story without any of the dialogue or uh, narrative captions. But anyway... So, <laughs> on my notes, on page one, I put uh, Genosha and Kellyanne. Uh, there is a, um, I would say her title is probably the government press secretary. So, she is pretty much just up there on camera spouting a bunch of Genosian propaganda about how it's the green and pleasant land, which is kind of their tagline, and talking about, you know, how... You know, the mutants have invaded Genosha in the past and, and all this terrible stuff. And basically they all got kidnapped and taken to Genosha and just raised a bunch of havoc while we were there. So I really, I really like it when comic books show villains using propaganda. It's like with uh, Uncanny Avengers, my favorite villain in there was Honest John the Living Propaganda on one of the Red Skull's minions. So I really enjoyed her. Uh, let's see. Open my phone back up. There we go. Um, now, we talked about DH Storm, so I can skip over that. Uh, page, pages 78 and pages 20 of this issue, Cable is an absolute jerk. And that's pretty much going to be the theme of this podcast for the next several episodes about how relatively unfiltered cable is not a very pleasant character um this issue of course was written by chris claremont and like i said in um the days of future present episode i don't think claremont cared much for the concept of cable and we'll see many many years from now when Claremont starts writing the X-Men again in the very late 90s, and Cable becomes a part of the team. Cable is very different at that point, um, in some ways good, in some ways bad. Um, Cable really, I mean, Claremont really nerfs Cable. Um, he becomes very, very ineffective in Claremont's run. But uh, basically, on pages 7 and 8, uh, we have Gene and Young Storm. Uh, kind of sparring in the danger room and Richter is outside and going, we'd like to use the danger room now. And, and all the X-Men are like, well, sorry, we're using it. You're going to have to waste your turn. So Cable just kind of kicks the door open with gun in hand and goes, get out. And uh, he's like, it's a new mutant's turn to use the, use the, he's a danger room. And all the X-Men are like, well, you know, I didn't see a schedule. And he's like, too bad. I say we're using the danger room now. It's so it's really a, a Snape saying that Slytherin gets to use the Quidditch court now moment, which is pretty. And I remember being uh, 16 and reading this and thought, thinking it was great because I was starting to like the New Mutants more than the X-Men at this point. Um, 
because I'd always liked the X-Men better than teams like Avengers because I thought, you know, the Avengers were kind of like the straight-laced heroes, kind of the establishment, and the X-Men were rebels. And now, compared to the X-Men, the New Mutants were the rebels, and I was starting to think of the X-Men as kind of the stuffy grown-ups. So I thought it was fun when Cable went in and kind of threatened everybody and kicked him out of the danger room. Now I look back on it as a grown-up and go, man, he was just being a jerk. And then on page 20, after all the kids get kidnapped, uh, Cable is talking to Forge and just calls him an Indian. Um, let me give, give me a second to pull up the quote. Hang on. Okay. So it's the very last panel of the issue. And all they found is the scrap of one of the kids' uniforms. And Cable's talking to Forge. He goes, I don't know who did this, Indian, yet. But when I find out, you got my word. The people responsible are going to wish they'd never been born. Now, I know that Claremont had a weird fetishization with other cultures, especially Japan and Native American cultures. Um, it would seem to me that already by 1990... Claremont would kind of be on the, you know, would be aware of the fact that probably Native American was the more appropriate term for people of that descent. The Indian was not really a favored term anymore. And it just seems weird to just address someone by their nationality. Uh, it just, it, it feels really awkward and bad. And maybe in like 87, 88, that would have worked. But, you know, I don't know. It just, it feels really off to me. You know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm just being a little hypersensitive to, you know, cultural awareness. But it, it's not a good look. All right, so moving on. Actually, before we go on, there was one thing from Uncanny 270 that I wanted to talk about. On pages 14 to 17, my notes say Genosian Robotech. And this is where we see the attack craft that the Genosian magistrates are using and they look awesome. Um, they have these kind of motorcycle looking things that have like one big wheel instead of two wheels. And there's other cra devices and I don't know if it's the motorcycles transformed, which would be pretty neat. The, the sizes don't look exactly right even though the shapes are about the same. But there's these other things that are about the shape of the motorcycle only they, ha they have like these two uh, like Imperial Scout Walker legs protruding out from them. And they have these big cannons on the front and they just look amazing. Again, this is kind of Jim Lee about at his peak. So that takes us on to New Mutants number 95. And I'm gonna be straight up honest with you. This is my least favorite part of this nine part crossover. Now, when I was a kid, I really hated the art in this one. I didn't even recognize it as Liefeld. And remember, as a kid, I really liked Liefeld. So that was a downer for me at the time. And basically what it is, it's Liefeld's uh, pencils with Joe Rubenstein's inks. And Rubenstein was a largely Bronze Age uh, inker. He did a lot of Captain America back in the early 80s. Um, and looking through it now, it's actually not bad. It tends to soften out some of Liefeld's more egregious kind of um, overwroughtness, I want to say, with his pencils. 
Um, he tends to make Liefeld's people look more like people. He kind of fixes some anatomy issues here and there. So that doesn't bother me at all the way it did as a kid. What bothers me is what Rob chooses to pencil in this. Now, I should add some backstory. Now, in the synopsis, I mentioned that this is where uh, Boom Boom and Richter and uh, Wolfsbane and Warlock and Young Storm all get abducted. And the way the magistrates abduct people is they have mutants that work for them, which is, I'm not even going to try to speculate about why a marginalized people would work for the system that oppresses them because like I'm a cisgendered white dude and I don't think that's my you know place to get into that kind of thing. I don't know, but I know it's a thing. But anyway, they have mutants that aren't mutates that work for them called the press gang that are kind of like super powered enforcers. And one of them is this guy called pipeline and he can teleport people, but the way he does it is he pretty much digitizes them and sends them as like an electronic, uh, kind of like he kind of emails people from place to place, right? But he can only do it with organic matter. So when you get digitized, your clothes stay behind. And so when you reappear, you're naked. Now, as a story element, this is pretty good because it helps show how just awful the Genosians are because... You know, it, it's not just, ooh, look, naked people. It's it's an element of dehumanization. You know, it's like, you are no longer a person. You are now a thing. You don't deserve clothes. It's intended to be humiliating. It's tended to be, to break down a person psychologically and throw them completely off center so that they can't, you know, they can't think. You know, they're, they're so busy being shocked, you know, and defenseless that it makes them harder for them to resist. So that's a really good story beat. The way Rob draws it though, and wait, before I go on to that, if the Genosians were turning were to turn that into an almost sexual thing, it would almost make sense too, because it would add to the level of degradation. If they like displayed people in an almost sexualized fashion, once they appeared naked, that would be you know further humiliating, which would make them easier to control. But it shouldn't look like that. It shouldn't look sexy to the reader. It should be horrifying to the reader who is supposed to be identifying with the victim here. The way Rob draws them, especially the way he draws naked Boom Boom, who's like maybe 16, maybe 17, and especially Storm, who's supposed to be like 12 and looks weirdly overdeveloped for a 12-year-old. It's really unsettling. And I get that they were trying to appeal to a certain demographic, and I was of the demographic of the time this came out. And even then, I was like, no, this is not cool. Um... They, sh- they shouldn't be standing around posing kind of sexy and being put on display like this for the gratification of the reader. It's, I don't like it at all. It's really bad way to interpret what could be in a very effective story element. Okay, anyway, moving on from that. Um, 
this is where war this is the issue where warlock dies um like you said in the synopsis um hodge has this big cyborg body i'm not going to go into it with this issue because rob doesn't do a great interpretation of it the three artists on this liefeld john bogdanov who we're going to talk about in the next issue and then lee all have their kind of different takes on it rob's is super boring okay so i'm not even gonna really bother getting into that but Hodge has his head stuck to this giant cybernetic machine and he doesn't like it and he wants to be able to use Warlock's transmode virus to be able to shapeshift, which is going to be something we're going to see in a few years, which, which, I, which is a story I really, really like. When we get to the Phalanx Covenant, I'm super excited to eventually get to that. I'm this close to getting to it on my personal read-through, but anyway... Um, but what is good about it, like I said, Rubenstein does a pretty good job of making Rob's pencils look better than they usually do. Um, it softens his harsher elements. Uh, I think Cable looks great in this. Cable's are wearing like my least favorite Cable look. It's what Jason and I refer to Cable's age vest. But um, beyond that, I just do not like this issue at all. So let's move on okay so that takes us on to x factor number 60. now this issue is drawn by john bogdanov with pencils by al milgram and i don't love bogdanov's pencils um and i have a feeling that milgram is heavily inking on this because i've seen milgram's pencils on some early 80s stuff specifically avengers and they both have very kind of cartoonish quality um milgram's pencils almost remind me of kind of like a poor man steve ditko a little bit but the it is a very kind of cartoony style between the two of them it looks like something that should either be on like a little kid's uh comic book or like a really weird early Vertigo title. So it's very strange. But even though his people look kind of weird, he leans into the grotesque really, really well. Now, the lesser example of that is the president of um, Genosha, who is, honestly, she looks like if Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher had a baby together and that baby was then 75 years old she is very impressive in how just i don't know she she she's real rough looking but she's real rough looking in a very surreal kind of way now beyond that let's talk about hodge's robot body and i said that all three artists on these books do the body a little differently and the way Liefeld does it is very boring. It's pretty much a big kind of rectangle with like four almost almost insect-like appendages that kind of look like um, praying mantis front arms. And then his head is just kind of positioned in kind of like a convexed area of the rectangle. And then there's a big scorpion tail. Now, the way Bogdanov draws it, there's 
one, there's more color added to it, which uh, we can attribute to Glennis Oliver, which is very nice. But the head is on this elongated neck that's very segmented. And then he's got his, he's got all these wires running from his chin and his nose and his forehead back into the neck. And one of the weirdest things is that he has his glasses on. And like, even though one lens is cracked and almost entirely missing, he still has his, his glasses on. But the absolutely weirdest thing, which I love is that he has a cardboard cutout of a person in a suit hanging from around his neck. So that when we first see him on the very first opening splash page, it looks like a guy with a kind of one-dimensionally drawn body with a bunch of technological gibberish behind him. But then in the second page, you see, oh man, that's just a wooden cutout hanging from around his neck. He is completely insane. And I'll get into the details of the robot body more when we get back into the Jim Lee issues. Because Jim Lee just, you know, it's it's Jim Lee in 1990. Of course, it's amazing. But the des- when I first saw the design of this body, I was like, I'm like, well, that's just dumb. That's lazy. You know, he, he could have had any kind of robot body. He got this. And it's a, I thought it was a lazy design. I don't think that anymore. I think this is the design you get when a crazy person who is an immortal disembodied head designs a robot body for himself. So I kind of love it. I'm going to have a sip of coffee. So, you know, even though the rest of Bogdanov's art is really wonky looking, the superheroes look kind of like really poorly designed action figures. There's a newscaster on page nine who has a head so big he could be Modoc. It's uh, it's really something. But I really like, like the, the more grotesque a character is supposed to be, the more I like Bogdanov's design. Leaning into that, we have a scene where a news crew is interviewing Boom Boom's dad. And he is just white trash to the nth degree. You've got the trailer on blocks in the background with a car on blocks next to it. And he looks like he hasn't shaved in like two weeks. And he's got a unibrow. And he's got this dirty ripped t-shirt under a um, like a worn flannel shirt with a bunch of cigarette with a cigarette pack sticking out of the shirt pocket. And he's he's got a looks like he's wearing a paper hat, which is really funny. And then he's got a beer bottle in one hand and saying, you know, he's calling her street trash. And they had the bleep out something that he called her. He called she's a little bleep. She's been bad news since she was born. She was uh, getting kidnapped is what she deserves. And uh, he hopes that the notions are strict. Maybe they can knock some respect into her. So, yeah, he is full on white trash. And Bogdanov does a good job of portraying that. And, of course, Louise does a good job of portraying that through the dialogue. Um, Let's see. And we get another scene where the U.S., all they're really to, all the, all the United States government is willing to do is offer condemnations and economic sanctions against Genosha because 
what they say publicly is that Genosha is too important of a trade partner to really make massive waves with them, even though they have abduct, abducted U.S. citizens off of U.S. soil. They have basically committed an act of war, but I think it's pretty obvious that the underlying implication is, well, they're just mutants. Why would we really bother? So, you know, with a lot of stories, when there's politics involved, even if I don't like the story in general like this, I'm not a huge fan of Extinction Agenda, but I am a fan of how the politics of the story are laid out, especially when, you know, there's elements that are kind of relatable to current real life. So that's X Factor 60. Like I said, I'm going through these really fast. I'm not, you know, I've laid out the plot in the synopsis and I'm just hitting the highs and lows in these. So I know I'm going through the issues pretty quickly, but there are a lot of issues to cover. So we've got six more to go. So let's get to it. Moving on to Uncanny number 271. This issue has an awesome cover. Um, hang on one second. My phone's being difficult. There we go. And it's got Wolverine uh, hacking at Cameron Hodge in his cyborg body. And then Psylocke and Young Storm are kind of wrapped up in these tendrils that uh, protrude from various bits of uh, Hodge's extremities. Um, it's pretty awesome cover. It's got the one thing that I think is kind of funny about it is that one of the wings on Wolverine's mask is torn and there's bits of his hair poking out between the wing of the mask, which is neat. Um, and it's just, you know, ripped up costume and uh, Hodge is kind of like scream laughing, it looks like, at this while they're fighting. It's just pretty great. And the opening page is divided into one, five, six panels. There's one long one at the top. There's one long one at the bottom. Uh, the one at the bottom has Storm and Boom Boom and Wolfsbane and Richter. The four in the middle are go back and forth between a reporter and the Genosian president and pictures of Genosha and the Navy. And the top is Jubilee, Psylocke, and Wolverine. And Wolverine's in the middle. And Wolverine looks just amazing in this panel. It's a straight on. He's holding a cigarette. He's got his mask on. And just the way that Lee does Wolverine's mask looks just absolutely fantastic. And in fact, Wolverine looks great in this whole issue um, on pages uh, four and five. Actually, I should back up a bit and let me kind of tell you where we are with the plot at this point in the story. So by now, uh, we know that Warlock is dead. And because of his sacrifice, Boom Boom and Richter have managed to escape. And Storm has a, well, Storm is lurking, lurking around the Genosian complex somewhere. Richter and Boom Boom have escaped into the city and Wolfsbane is still held prisoner. So by now, uh, Wolverine and Psylocke and Jubilee have made their way into Genosha because they found out about the kids getting kidnapped. And so they are jumping to the rescue while some magistrates are after Boom Boom and Richter. And again, Wolverine just looks awesome in this. There's a panel where he's jumping over a ledge and uh, Jubilee's holding onto his neck and he's got the claws on his right hand popped. 
And then on the on page uh, five, they're just jumping into the middle of the fray, and he's slashing uh, one magistrate's gun with his claws, and he's kind of clotheslining another magistrate with his left arm, and it just looks really, really cool. And again, just Jim Lee's art during this time period it looks absolutely amazing. So, um, and there's a whole lot of fighty fight with magistrates and, and all that good stuff. Um, and Psylocke kind of gets caught up to speed with, with what's going on by psychically tapping into all the kids' heads. There's a scene on page 10 where it is a remote debate between the gene engineer, Dr. Moreau, and, you know, Island of Dr. Moreau. That's lots of fun, mad scientist shenanigans going on there. And Moira. And keep in mind, this is still evil, sexy Moira that we talked about in the earlier issues of New Mutants. Because the Muir Island saga is not complete yet. It will not wrap up until two story arcs after this one. You know, from here, they go to X-Men and space fighting the War Scrolls, And when they come back... That's when the Mirror Island saga happened. So uh, Mora is still being influenced by the Shadow King. And I didn't necessarily read it this way. Because, again, Wolfsbane is Moira's ward. And so she's obviously upset about her ostensibly you know, foster daughter being kidnapped. But she is, she is pretty vicious in this. And when the Jean-Jeanier makes a comment about he says, perhaps your own connections with this affair merit some closer scrutiny. And she's like, she comes up like, you, you threatening me? You coming after me? Come to my island. You'll see how much you enjoy that. And it's pretty great. And she has this smirk on her face that you would think if you are trying to kind of debate, negotiate for your child's welfare, you might not antagonize the person holding them captive. But this Moira, and Moira gives no Fs. So that is pretty, it's pretty fun to read. Uh, let's see. Okay. Now I've talked about Hodge's body. Jim Lee does the absolute best version. Now I've said that Rob's is pretty basic. Um, and Bogdanov's is wonky looking, but still kind of awesome in its just audacity. This is great. So on page 14, the top panel, Storm, like I said, is kind of skulking around the main facility where Hodge, you know, is hanging out and the engineer's offices and all that. And she's got a knife and she sneaks up on the engineer and is, you know, threatening to kill him if he doesn't fix her and fix her friends, put him back to normal. And then Hodge comes around the corner and... They have a very narrowed color scheme for this. It's like the bulk of the body is kind of purple and black. And then it's got gold armor plating and gold bits on the extremities. And the best way I can describe it, if you've seen John Carpenter's The Thing, you know, there's the scene where the guy falls over with a heart attack and they give him CPR and the guy's chest opens up and bites somebody's hands off. Then the guy's head rips itself off and crawls away. And then a creature bursts out of the guy's chest. And it's all long segmented body 
and distorted head and just lots of flailing spidery limbs. Take that and make it technological. And that's what Jim Lee's version of Hodge's body looks like. And it is absolutely phenomenal. And at the bottom of the page, there's a close-up of his face, and he's got all these weird spots all over his face, like maybe his head is starting to decay. And he doesn't do the glasses the way Bogdanov does. Bogdanov draws a pair of regular glasses that have just kind of been fastened to his head. Lee does it as a pair of almost goggle lenses that fit over his eyes, which looks really cool. And then there's tubes coming out of his nose and tubes coming out of his forehead. And there's just, you know, from a close, from a pulled back shot, there's just a million little tubes. But when you get up close, you can see there's also a little bit of his natural hair in the front of his hairline. And he's got that big Sylvester evil grin. It is just an amazing, amazing page. Again, if you're looking at the, if you're reading along and you've got the digital copy, it's page 14. It is just stellar. So the one other thing about this issue that I want to talk about, there's kind of a monologue that the engineer is having with himself because he, he's kind of talking to the picture of his son. And remember, his son defected and his son helped his girlfriend, Jenny Ransom, escape the island after she'd been target, targeted for the mutate process. I don't think she fully went through the process, but she got bonded to her suit and I think he rescued him right before that. And so he's talking about, you know, his son, you know, how could you do this to me? Don't you understand what I do is difficult for me on an emotional level? And Jenny was his goddaughter. And uh, he says, all I've done, my son, I've done for my country to make the best possible future for its children. And if some of those children must be sacrificed for the greater good of that society, and then that's when Rogue sneaks up on him with a knife and cuts him off. But I really like that. It reminds me of the short story, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas by Ursula K. Le Guin. It's a, if you've never read it, uh, God, I remember we had to read this in like 11th grade literature class. And it's a really dark story. It's a story about this kind of utopian city and everything's wonderful, except what makes the city wonderful is, and they never explain why or how it's all, you know, deliberately vague, but because of this one child is constantly in perpetual misery that somehow enables the rest of the village to be perfect. And that is, you know, Moreau talking about how he's willing to sacrifice children for the greater good of his utopian society really brings that to mind. And it is really powerful and disturbing. That takes us to New Mutants number 96, which has a pretty cool cover of Cable and the Beast, which is not a pairing you see very often, fighting some magistrates. And Cable looks okay, but the Beast looks really good on this cover. Again, and for the thousandth time, uh, Rob Liefeld does some pretty good characters that don't present openly as human. So pretty well done on the cover. Now, this uh, issue has two inkers. It has Joe Rubenstein, Ruben, I don't know if it's Rubenstein or Rubenstein, so I'll probably end up waffling back and forth just wherever my pronunciation takes me at any second. And it's also inked by Art T. Bear. We need to talk about Art T. Bear for a minute. 
because I am finding more and more that there are creators associated with Marvel, especially 90s Marvel comics, that um, are turning out nowadays to not be such good people. And we've already talked about how Rob seems to be kind of the poster boy of the comic skate movement. And if you're blissfully unaware of what comic skate is, and you don't really want to know, just know that they're bad news. Uh, if you do want to know what they are and you're not over familiar, that's what Google's for, have at it. Um, and, you know, Jason and I talked about this when we covered X-Force on an episode of his show. I talked it a little bit on, I think, the first episode of this show. Um, and Rob has kind of fallen in with them in as far as they seem to gravitate towards him because he's a 90s creator who was very intentionally non-political with his comics. And that's the direction that comic skate people want comics to go to, even though comics in the 90s, especially X-Men line comics, were very political. Um, and he, you know, is... I think he's kind of hurting for fans, and so I think he's kind of embraced their appreciation of him. Now, Art T. Bear was recently um, on a, I guess it was like a Zoom call that was kind of live cast. I don't know how it works. I'm like 46 years old. Don't ask me to explain the internet. But it was a whole thing where him and Ethan Ben Scriber, who was kind of the leader of Comicsgate, and two other guys were having a conversation that they were live casting and they were gleefully bashing a female comics creator who has cancer. And that's just about the crappiest thing you can do. Now, we're going to encounter more 90s Marvel X-Men creators as we go forward with the podcast uh, who have also turned out to not be very good people. Uh, we will talk about them when we get to them, but let's just suffice to say for now, that the official stance of the Cable Guide podcast is that I do not condone anyone who is sexist or misogynist or racist or uh, engages in sexual misconduct. Uh, any work of theirs that we are discussing on the show for good or ill will be based solely on the basis of the work itself and not on that of the creator. So with that said, where we're at in the story now is that uh, Wolverine and Psylocke and Jubilee have come to the island. Wolverine has put Jubilee in charge of babysitting Richter and Boom Boom because they have no powers. And Wolverine and Psylocke have gotten captured. Now, the rest of the ex-people have uh, regrouped inside of a warehouse somewhere. And they decided to split into two groups. One of which is going to be led by Cyclops and the other which is going to be led by Cable's group. Now, this is, issue does not say what Cyclops' group is going to do, but Cable's group is going after the people who have been taken prisoner. And so Jean Grey takes him and Gambit and Sunspot, I think that's it, and they go infiltrate the place where the prisoners are. And Cable looks pretty awesome in this issue. Um, I have to admit and Jason talked about this a little bit on the last episode of this show, where Art T. Bear is a very good anchor for Rob Liefeld's pencils. Uh, there's a page, let's see, a panel on page uh, six, where Cable's just standing there and he's got one foot propped up on a crate 
and he's holding a big chum chum gun and he's got another big chum chum gun on his back and he has that weird kind of signature padded armor that Rob likes to draw and he looks pretty great. His legs may be a bit long for his body, but it still looks cool. Um, Jean Grey actually looks pretty awesome in this. He gives her like great big floofy hair and he does a good job of drawing kind of her, uh, her telekinetic effect. I do have to say though that Havoc, who doesn't wear his costume in this, he's wearing a magistrate uniform because again, he's been brainwashed, looks exactly like Cannonball only with kind of darkened in eyes. Um, but when uh, Cable's group gets into, uh, I guess, the, the prison where the good guys are being kept, uh, there's a panel of Gene kind of levitating him. He looks pretty cool there. That's on page 15. Uh, Liefeld's Gambit looks pretty good. Um, he's got that kind of signature exploding uh, fireworks effect cape that I talked about with Strife, where it looks like it's kind of parachuting out from the middle of their back. Only with Gambit, it's his trench coat. So when it comes from the waist, it looks good. Um, and then <laughs> there's a great panel on page 18 with Cable just laying out a magistrate and Cable looks huge compared to this guy. And again, I don't have a problem with that because Cable is supposed to be somewhere between like six and a half to seven feet tall. So that's pretty great. But uh, Hodge shows up and he's got um, one of the press gang with him again named Wipeout who negates people's powers. And unlike um, Scramble, from the Marauders, it is not a temporary effect. Once he takes your powers, they are gone. So that does present quite a bit of a problem, but as I talked about in the synopsis, that does get dealt with. And that's where we see for the first time that Wolfsbane, Wolfsbane has been fully gone through the mutate process, and she looks like a, like a vampire elf, which is kind of neat. She's got a shaven head, and she's got these big arching eyebrows, and uh, they Rob started drawing Rain with these kind of long pointed ears. So yeah, Vampire Elf is what I'm thinking that she looks like here. So that's pretty fun. And this takes us to X Factor 61. I don't have a lot to say about this one. Um, not a whole lot happens in it, uh, basically. Cyclops' team takes its turn trying to break into the facility where everybody's being held and they get captured too. Now, the main thing I want to talk about this one is on the cover, Cable looks like an extremely jacked 80-year-old. His face is weird looking. And it's a scene of him. It's hard to tell if he's kind of leaping toward Hodge and has grabbed a handful of wires or if he's already made his way to Hodge and is being yanked back by Hodge's tentacles. But the odd thing is if you go to page seven, the top panel of that page is an exact recreation or vice versa of the cover. And the only difference is the expression on Hodge's face is different. On the In that panel, Hodge looks shocked that Cable was able to get that close to him, and on the cover, Hodge has a malicious grin going on. Um, now, the only other thing I really want to talk about this is, at this point, everyone's powers have been knocked out by Wipeout. 
and Cable says that because his powers have been neutralized, he can't control his bionics. And again, Louise and Rob did not have a clear idea in mind of where they wanted to go with Cable. It was very much an organic process. So it makes me wonder what they were thinking Cable's powers might turn out to be. Because I don't even think it, before this it had been confirmed that Cable was even a mutant or that he had powers other than his cybernetics. It always came across to me at the time that he was just a school cyborg guy who decided to team up with the new mutants. So it makes me wonder if his powers are supposed to be tied into his cybernetics somehow. There's a character that was in Alpha Flight in the late 80s and early 90s named Madison Jeffries who would go on to be in Dr. Nemesis's uh, X Club in the late 2000s and early 2010s. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he had the power to manipulate machinery. So he was kind of a cross between Magneto and Forge. Um, and I wonder if maybe that's where they were going with Cable at this point is that his power was to, like, whatever power he had is what was the power source for his cybernetics. I don't know. It's pretty vague. But we're actually going to talk about Cable's cybernetics more in just a minute, because that takes us over to Uncanny number 272. And this is my favorite issue of the crossover, is my favorite cover of the crossover. It is Cable and Wolverine and Archangel looking all intense at the camera, and it's the three... Um, like warrior badasses of all three teams, plus a newly re-aged Storm right in the middle. She's got her shaved head, and she's wearing the mutate skin suit. And I think it's not only is it looks great, it's a great composition, it's great coloring, it's great layout, but I like the fact that Storm is kind of front and center of these badasses saying, oh yeah, everybody thinks that the guys with the guns and the blades are the badasses, but you know, consider how powerful Storm is. And considering that even without her powers back in the 80s, she, you know, single-handedly defeated Cyclops in combat and led, you know, my definitive leader of the X-Men. So I really, really like this cover. And once we get in it, on the opening page, we have a bunch of panels of people being interviewed by reporters about the situation in Genosha. And we have... Quick cameos by Reed Richards, and we have Sunspot's dad, who says he just has no comment at all on the situation because he doesn't like his kid. Uh, we have She-Hulk saying that uh, she intends to uh, legally represent the mutants in Genosha. And then we have a guy who refuses to give his name, but is a white guy with, uh, with some five o'clock shadow, excuse me, and black hair sticking out from under a ball cap. And he says that if the mutants are guilty, they deserve to be punished. And so that was the uh, subtle cameo of the Punisher there because, of course, this was the late 80s and early 90s. So Cable was appearing as often as Wolverine was as a guest star in various books. Uh, let's see. So there's a neat little scene where all the mutants are kind of up on a platform, and the barristers of Genosha are pretty much telling them how the trial is going to go, that this is pretty much just for show. They're going to be executed when it's over. 
And Cyclops says, you, you can't do this to us. We're citizens of the United States. And the barristers say, you can't prove it. You are not in any national or international database. And Cable says, well, how does that work? And the Beast says, well, a while back, we in pretty much, it, it comes across as they introduce like a virus into the international database system to wipe themselves out of the database. And Cable goes, so I guess when I hooked up with them, with the new mutants that included me too, and Beast goes, yes. And Cable says, I'm surprised you people lived as long as you have. So I thought that was pretty funny. And it was ironic that their attempt to protect themselves had land, has landed them in deeper hot water. Um, let's see. Now, now we get to talk about Cable's cybernetics. So there is a scene where um, the mutants have basically been turned over to Hodge to do with as he will. And he starts torturing Cable. And they don't show it, but he supposedly rips out Cable's bionic eye and he starts dismantling his bionic arm. Now, even though they don't show it, this is going to be very different than how Cable's cybernetics are going to be handled later. Because keep in mind, in about mm, little over, I would say about three years from this point, it's going to be revealed that Cable is definitely the adult son of Scott Summers and Jean Grey, uh, who was infected with a version of the techno-organic virus. And from that point on, you know, the cybernetic arm and the cybernetic eye and any cybernetics he has are going to be techno-organic. But that hasn't been determined at this point, so his cybernetics work very, very differently. In fact, at three distinct points, starting in 1992, there's going to be scenes where Cable gets his a significant amount of skin ripped off, or he just gets blasted right open, and it looks like obviously advanced robotics, but it just looks like standard robotics because the techno-organic virus is basically nanotech. You know, it's, it's robotics on a molecular or cellular level. And, you know, cables, cybernetics at this point look like they're from the future, but they look like, you know, if you break it, it stays broken. It doesn't shift. It looks like the kind of cybernetics that Deathlock would have or Misty Knight would have or Forge or it looks like something Forge or Iron Man would build. And the first time I did my read-through in 2018, I skimmed over some of the Nicieza stuff. And what I missed that first time around is that Cable reveals that when he came back to the 20th century, he has enough control over his techno-organic mesh that he can kind of subtly influence its shape. So he kind of programmed his cybernetics to look like standard, if advanced, robotics of the era to uh, protect his secret so that no one would try to uh, pretty much capture him and weaponize the techno-organic virus, which is a really good retcon. Now, it's never retconned as to why him not having powers would make him not be able to use his cybernetics, because we find out later that his powers are what keep his cybernetics in control. Without his powers at this point, his bionic parts start to grow and morph and try to take over his body and try to attack whatever's around him. So it's ironic at this point, because remember one of Hodge's three goals was to absorb 
the techno organic virus uh, aspect of the trans mode virus so he could shapeshift and if you take into a, take into effect the retcon he had someone in his hands who had a version of a techno organic virus and he wasn't able to use it and if the retcon had been in effect at this time when he tried when he started attacking cable cybernetics those cybernetics probably would have fought back so i think that is just a fun interesting little bit of nerdness um let's see so a little bit later on in the book there's a really cool looking fight between wolverine and archangel basically um hodge puts them in a, like a gladiator pit and they have these uh collars on that are enhancing their aggressiveness and it's either you fight or i'm going to kill everybody and they go at it and they rip each other to shreds and it's a pretty awesome looking fight uh, there's a cute scene a little bit after that where okay i mentioned that boom boom and richter have escaped from the facility before they were turned into mutates but they were still bonded to mutate suits and jubilee uses her pyrotechnics to blast boom boom out of her suit and Boom Boom is naked underneath, but Jim Lee pulls it off in a way that is not sexualized and is actually really funny. It's kind of cute. Like she's holding um, Jubilee's yellow trench coat over herself. And she just looks shocked and horrified and awkward. And it's not, it doesn't sexualize Boom Boom in any way. And it makes you kind of feel bad for her. Um, and it's, it's just an adorable scene. I, I really like it. it. It's very well done. And the last thing for this issue I want to talk about, there is a scene where Gambit kind of initiates the process of freeing the other mutants from their restraints. Because one of Hodge's weapons he has is this cannon that shoots spikes. For whatever reason, he shoots spikes out of a cannon, and one of them hits Gambit in the leg. And so the mutants are all in these uh, shackles that cover their whole hands, and they're hanging from the wall. And Gambit has the um no, 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 no. the um, spike in his leg and so he raises his leg up to his mouth he pulls the spike out of his leg with his mouth then grabs the spike with his feet and uses the spike between his feet to unlock his shackles which is great because if you're going to have a thief on the team you need to have him do thief stuff so that was very well done both by claremont and lee And that takes us to the wrap-up with New Mutants 97 and X-Factor 62. And across these two issues, the plot is basically that Storm uses her secret power that the gene engineer programmed into her to return herself to her proper age and to restore everyone's lost powers. And even though she's not able to fully free Wolfsbane from the mutate process, Rain discovers that when she is in her half-wolf form, she has her own mind back. And then afterwards, Cyclops and Havoc combine the powers of Brotherhood to destroy Hodge's giant robot body. Wolfsbane rips Hodge's head off of the destroyed robot body, and then Richter drops a building on Hodge's head, at which point everybody goes home except for Havoc and Wolfsbane, who decide to stay behind to help the newly freed mutates. And I combine these two issues together for the last bit of discussion, because the plot honestly gets very thin at this point, which I'll address in a bit. 
and it is hard for me to find something positive to say about these two issues. Um, the cover to New Mutants 97 is by Rob, and it's a typical Liefeld cover. Cable looks okay. Wolverine looks good, except for the fact that half of his mask is ripped off and the other half is still in place like it's held on by spirit gum, which is pretty funny. The cover to X-Factor 62 is pretty great. It's a Jim Lee cover, and it's got Havoc in the center with his shirt ripped off and his arms in the air doing his concentric plasma circles. And then Gene and Scott are on either side of him posing and looking, looking really cool. Iceman's on the other side of Gene with his arms crossed. Uh, Cable's on the other side of Cyclops with a, you know, posing with his gun. And then um, Jubilee and Wolverine are in front. And Wolverine's got his claws out and he's snarling at the camera. And I, th I thought it was a good touch that they remembered that Jubilee does not have her trench coat at this point because she gave it to Boom Boom. And Jubilee's looking like, ugh, while Havoc's at Havoc's, like, naked chest, which is pretty funny. But the interior art on both of these issues is really, really bad. Um, New Mutants 97 has a fill-in artist, a guy named Guang Yap. I assume that's the correct pronunciation. If not, I'm very sorry. Um, I've, I've looked him up. Only thing I've seen him do other than this is uh, an indie book, uh, Dragon something or other. And his art in that looks pretty decent, so I'm guessing a lot of it is the inkers, uh, maybe lack of heavy lifting in this one, but it looks pretty terrible. And probably the most egregious thing is every once in a while, someone will draw Storm with almost cat-like eyes. But this, I mean, he, Yop draws Storm with these gigantic, like, kind of anime eyes. And have these, you know, cat slits in them, and it looks really, really weird, especially with her shaven head. She just looks completely inhuman. And Bogdanov is the artist again on the last issue, which really feels anticlimactic. Um, I think, and again, this is purely speculation, I assume that this was intended to be a three-part story that just took place in Uncanny because this story seems to have four objectives, which all of which it hits. It wraps up the subplot of Kid Storm. It begins the process of bringing the X-Men back together. It addresses the dangling subplot of Genosha, and it plays to Jim Lee's strong points with its art. All those things it accomplishes very, very well. And I think if this had been a three-part story that had just taken place in Uncanny X-Men with just Claremont doing the writing and just Jim Lee doing the art, this would be a good story. I've mentioned that the story that comes after this is the one where the X-Men go into space and fight the War Scrolls. And I love that story. It's not a particularly deep story. It's pretty simple, but it's solid. And the art dresses it up enough to make it really, really fun. And I think the same thing could have happened here. And I remember seeing the promos for this about three months before it came out, and it really sold it as Wolverine and Cable and Archangel, just the three team badasses teaming up to take on these bullies that persecute mutants on a national scale, which I think is a pretty great story. And it, that didn't happen. It got, if you take a meal that is, you know, 
solid but not particularly great and then stretch it out across nine days, that's going to be a pretty thin meal. It's not going to be particularly enjoyable, and I think that's what happened here. And I don't blame Claremont. I don't blame Louise. Um, I assume that this is Bob Harris is doing. Because keep in mind, Bob Harris had been on the Xbooks for maybe a year by this point. I think he came on to the Xbooks around the summer of 89. And the last big X-Men crossover was Inferno, which was when the X-Books didn't have their own editor. That They were all under then-editor-in-chief Jim Shooter. And Inferno was Shooter's idea. And he kind of said, you know, all right, you, you, you know, Chris and Louise, y'all come up with another big crossover. I want it to happen. And they did. And it was a huge success. 89, there was no big X crossover because that was when Tom DeFalco took over as editor-in-chief. And he wanted to have a line-wide crossover, and that was Acts of Vengeance. And, but it was about that time that Bob Harris became ex-editor. And that's when we start to see the X-Books start to change. That's when we start to see the beginnings of, of the 90s comics. That's when we get uh, Sexy Ninja Psylocke. That's when we get Cable. And so I think that when Claremont presented this story idea to Bob Harris, Bob said, great, this is going to be my first big X crossover. Y'all make it happen. And I think it took a, a uninspired but hearty stew and turned it into thin gruel. And I, uh, I hate doing episodes where I'm negative on a book because I try to find the positive things in a story and I've tried to find all the positive things that I could but this story just really ends on a whimper which makes me kind of sad and with that uplifting note that brings episode 6 of the cable guide to an end now I apologize for having this episode out a few days late it was kind of a crazy day around the uh, crazy couple of weeks around the Richter house. But to make up for it and to get things back on schedule, I'm going to be putting out a mini episode that will be dropping next Tuesday. And from that point on, we will be back on track. I'm not going to spoil the secret of what the mini episode is going to be about. Uh, that will be episode seven. Episode eight, though, we are going to jump into the last three issues of New Mutants. So I'm looking forward to both of those things. As always, you can find me on Twitter at StormChaser2162. Also, as always, our intro music is from the song Times Arrow by the band A Sound of Thunder because nothing says cable like a metal song about time travel. And I will be back with you guys soon because with cable, it's always just a matter of time. Body slide by one. <laughs>